0: Hi, this is Amanda, and this is Lindsay, we're True Creeps, where the stories are true, and the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore, to the possibly plausible paranormal, to horrifying history, to tense and terrible true crime, and everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics, listener discretion is advised. Hey, everybody. So today we're going to be talking about a pretty gruesome set of murders that happened in Deltona, Florida. They've been dubbed the Xbox Murders, and they've also been called the Deltona Massacre. Our primary source of information from this was court docs. And what was nice about this was that we got a very detailed perspective about what happened in the nights preceding the murders and oftentimes from the perpetrators. There were some things that were contradictory. So as we approach those facts, we'll mention those. It'll also be pretty clear because one person will have said this and then we'll have a different perspective. So we're going to start with the victims. And there was six of them for this case, and they were all relatively young adults The first one is Erin Bellinger, and she was only 22 years old. She was Bill Bellinger's only daughter, and he spoke publicly about how horrific it is not to only lose your child, but to lose them in such a brutal way. And it's horrific. We'll get into the details. Something really sad, too, that I found out is that he didn't find out about Erin's death until the following day after he got home from work. And the way that he found out is a cousin called him and said she had heard that Erin was murdered last night. So he wasn't even contacted by authorities. He was contacted by what he described as a cousin. How bizarre. Yeah. Awful. And in one interview, he was just talking about his little girl. And he said that she was overall a good kid and she was very active. She liked to read. And then jokingly, he said she liked to be the boss, which I thought was cute. And as he was talking, he talked about, too, that he sent her to Florida. So he was the one that recommended going to Florida because he thought that she would be close to some of her family members, which her grandma lived there part time, her cousin lived there. And he thought overall, the economy would be better, especially for a young adult starting out, it would be easier to get a job, there's more opportunities. So he was kind of being selfless where he's like, I want my baby with me, but I also want her to be able to grow and learn and have more opportunities. So he sent her there. He teared up many, many times. He also mentioned that her making this move, he felt a little bit better about it because her boyfriend, Francisco, or they called him Flacco, was also moving with her. And because he liked her boyfriend, it made him feel a little bit of a sense of security knowing that she was with someone who also loved her and would take care of her and be there for anything. And then unfortunately, one of the other victims was her boyfriend, Francisco I O Roman, who again, they called Flacco. He was 30 years old. And Flacco's family described him as always smiling and said that he wanted to become a nurse. And he had actually already completed his nursing education in Puerto Rico. So from what I understand, he lived in Puerto Rico. And then when he moved, that's when he met Aaron. And her dad was jokingly saying, like, he didn't even know much English, but he taught us how to communicate. Like he taught us Spanish and it was like they had a really cute relationship. Another victim was Michelle Nathan, who was 19. And Kay Shuckwit, Michelle's mother, said Michelle was, quote, not just my daughter. She was my best friend. Breaks my heart. Michelle wanted to go to college to be a veterinarian. And her mom described her as loving all animals. She was like big or small. She loved them. Yeah. So another one of the victims was Anthony Vega, who was 34. Nancy Cordero, who described herself as Anthony's little sister, she said that she looked up to him and said that he was her Superman. Robert Gonzalez was 28, and his family and friends called him Tito. His mother, Tina Gonzalez, said, Our lives have become an endless pit of pain. There is no greater pain than to lose a son. My last kiss was placed on a cold casket. Ugh. And just, I mean, we talk often about parents, right, and how painful it is. And that's not surprising. The natural order of things is not children and parents. It's just so terrible. The last victim and the youngest was Jonathan Gleason, who was just 17. During the sentencing part of the trial that we'll eventually discuss, Jonathan's mother, Patricia, and his sister, Melissa, told the jurors that he was an honor student, a dancer, and a musician. He had wanted to become a doctor. His mother said he was wise beyond his years. And Jonathan's actually the reason why we're talking about this case today, because one of our listeners requested that we cover this case because there are some current case happenings and because they personally knew Jonathan. They described Jonathan as a joy to be around and that he always tried to make those who were around him happy. Aww. Our listeners said that, that Jonathan had a bright future and said, I don't know many examples of better humans than him. I was going to say men, but he didn't get a chance to grow up. He was just a kid when this happened to him and he didn't deserve this. It's really sad. It's heartbreaking. I don't often hear of murder victims where I'm like, yeah, it was a good thing. But I will say that for this particular group of people, the world was brighter with them in it. Like, there's no doubt in my mind. Yeah. Because we're, like as we talk about each one of them, everyone talked about how that person's presence in people's lives made other people's lives better. Like, these were just good humans. Yeah. And so it makes it so much more unfathomable this this level of violence that we're going to talk about. Yeah, and that they were also just very very young. Like their lives didn't even get to really start. Yeah. So, now we're going to talk about the people responsible for their murders. And there were four people who were imprisoned in relation to the death, but the ringleader, so like the one in charge of all of this, you could say, was a man named Troy Victorino. And we're going to begin to discuss the case details by talking about Victorino just to give you an idea. I think that it's really it's an important part to talk about at the top because it lets you kind of see how we got there, like how this could happen. The question I kept asking myself was, who could do this? Yeah. Why would you do this? Like, how could a person do these things and convince other people to do them, too? And when I was reading about this, this was one of the last things that I read. It was discussed during the sentencing phase of the trials. So this was the last thing I read. And I was like, oh, this to me, this frames everything. And understanding this in the beginning, it it gives a perspective of how we got here and how many times our system failed Mm -hmm. to stop this person from hurting more people. Yeah. Yeah. So he had head injuries when he was four and 14. Victorino was physically and sexually abused as a young child. He was admitted to the hospital when he was eight because he was suicidal. It's very early and that's really sad. Yeah. Yeah. This is tragic. Victorino spent a month and a half in a psychiatric hospital when he was nine years old. He was diagnosed with early schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and atypical depression. When he was young, he reported hearing voices calling his name. We've heard that in a couple cases before, like where they hear voices or they're talking to someone that's not necessarily there. Mm -hmm. As a child, he would sleep with a baseball bat. Victorino was first convicted of a felony when he was only 10 years old. He attempted suicide again when he was 14. And then when he was 15, he began attending a school for children who suffered from psychological problems. Victorino was sentenced to five years in prison when he was just 16. He had once been convicted of beating a former friend by crushing his face with a stick, which blinded him in one eye. And then he impaled him. He only served six years of a 15-year sentence, and he was released in 2003 shortly before what we're going to talk about happened. Yeah, because what we're going to talk about happened in 2004. At the time of the murders, Victorino was 6'6 to 6'7, and he was 300 pounds. He was described as a very physically intimidating person. Yeah. But from all accounts, it seems like he was also like a mentally intimidating person. Like everything about him set people kind of on edge. Yeah. And even when you see some of the videos of him like walking into a courtroom, and he's towering over everyone in the room. Yeah. He had also been arrested again on July 29th. So just a touch over a month before the murders uh, on assault charges. But he was released less than 24 hours later on bail, even though the arrest violated his probation. And we'll talk about his probation more later. So we looked at his sentencing history as part of our research for his offenses. His previous offenses included arson, stealing cars, burglary, and... And as we mentioned before, other violent crimes cumulatively as of his 1997 conviction, which was seven years before the murders, he had over 70 years worth of prison sentences that obviously weren't carried out. (laughs) Yeah, that obviously weren't carried out. And Amin and I were adding them up and it was like several instances of four years, several instances of five years, a 15 year sentence. So it was like over and over and over. He was reoffending. So one of the biggest questions that people have about this case is how did Victorino get a group of people who he hadn't known for a substantial period of time to murder in such a heinous way? So as we discuss the days leading up to the murders, you'll see the group amplify little by little in aggression. And we'll talk about the possible motives of other group members. Lots of articles say that the main motive for the murders was that Victorino didn't get his Xbox back. That's why people called this case the Xbox murders, which Surprisingly, isn't the only time that a case has been called that. There's other Xbox murders out there for different reasons. Yeah. So let's get into the days leading up to the case so we can discuss the likely motive. On July 30th of 2004, Deputy John McDonald came to 1590 Providence Boulevard in response to a suspicious activity complaint from Aaron Bellinger. The home that the officer was called out to was owned by Norma Reedy, who lived there during the winter time. So she is what we call a snowbird. She goes to Florida during the winter and then lives elsewhere during the summer. Erin was Norma's granddaughter, and since she was there in town, she watched the home while Norma was away. And the way that she was described in a documentary that I watched is she was very good at taking care of the home. Like she'd go and check on the backyard, she'd go make sure everything was fine, and she even like bring some of her friends along. So like I want to say. Michelle also would tag along with her sometimes to just like do little chores around the house to make sure it was like good for when grandma got home. I guess she called her Nana. Also in the documentary that I watched, they had the 911 call. What she says on the call is that for about a month now, people have been staying in the home's breezeway. And a breezeway is often like an open passage connecting two buildings, like a house or the garage or halves of the building, like a screened off area is the way that she described it. The officer then asked how many people, and she responded that she didn't know how many, but she only knew one by name. The strange thing that was called out was the dispatcher never asked for the name. Like if someone goes, there might be more, but I only know of one person, wouldn't your first follow-up question be, well, who is it? So that we can get that documented. That doesn't seem strange to me because dispatchers are dispatching. They're not fact gathering in that level. Like I need to send someone for this issue. Now, that being said, though, If they had taken that name and they had run his name, they may have done very different things. Yeah, I thought my understanding, and I could be absolutely wrong, is like a 911 operator wants to gather as much information as they can in a timely fashion that makes sense in case the call gets disconnected or something happens. I see it both ways. Like, yeah, oh, someone's been here. No one's there now. So she's not in immediate danger. But then also I feel like someone should have asked her, but who who is there? Yeah, the question should have been asked by someone by someone. Yeah. So no one had permission to live in this home while her grandma was away. But her grandson, Joshua Spencer, did have a key to the home. And that's from when he lived with her. Although Norma thought that she had gotten the key back from Joshua, it seems like it was up in the air. Just to paint the picture a little bit better. Joshua is Aaron's cousin. So like same grandmother. Amanda Francis and Brandon Sheets were in the home. When Brandon and Amanda were questioned by Deputy McDonald, Amanda said Troy Victorino had given her permission to be there, and Brandon claimed Joshua Spencer had given him permission to be there. Josh, by this time, had already moved back to Maine, too. So he was there for a bit, moved back to Maine, where the majority of the family was from. Yeah. So, Deputy McDonald called Reedy, who said that she had not given them permission to be in the home and that she had only given permission to her granddaughter, Erin Bellinger. And Reedy said she didn't want to press charges. Deputy McDonald also told Reedy that there was not evidence of a break in, which likely contributed to her not wanting to press charges that there wasn't damage. Right. And he also told Erin that she should look through her grandmother's house to make sure that there wasn't any damage and to make sure nothing had been stolen. While he was walking around, he noted that it looked like somebody was living in the screened-in area of the home because there was bedding and personal belongings. I'm sure Aaron was like, "Mm mm-hmm, saw it, saw it. That's why I called. Yeah. And so McDonald then suggested that Aaron figure out who owned the items that were in there and return it to them or just get rid of it. Makes sense. Don't have it. You don't want that person's belongings because they're going to return for it. Yeah. And just as a note, too, Reedy had met Victorino through her grandson, but she hadn't given him permission to live in the home. And she wasn't aware that Joshua had said that he could live there. She wasn't aware of any agreements between anybody and Victorino or anybody, period. Yeah. So rather than these murders being motivated by Aaron withholding an Xbox from Victorino, it's thought that Victorino's eviction from Reedy's house is what sparked his aggression. Right. To me, it seemed like like an obsession. There was items that he wanted that seemed important to me, but his response was so disproportionate for this perceived slight. Right. And the items you're talking about is what was left in the home. So he wasn't there at this point, right? When she called the police, Mm -hmm. but his items were there, including an Xbox We want to say there was like clothing and just like general items. Just a box of papers. Yeah. To me, it didn't seem like it was like trunks and trunks worth of stuff. It was just like what he was moving about with him. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So on July 31st, 2004, Flacco and Aaron met Deputy Seerstorf at the Providence Road home, which was her grandmother's house. Aaron reported that a DVD, VCR player, and a CD player had been taken. While at the home, Deputy Seerstor saw that there were clothing and shoes littered all over the house. Additionally, the deputy was not aware of whether Victorino had permission to be in the home. And there was also a box that had papers with Victorino's name on it. Erin was aware that Victorino had been staying in her grandmother's house, so she knew his name. But it sounds like no one really asked who he was at this point. Later on that same day, July 31st, Victorino went to the Telford Road home. And the Telford Road home is actually where Aaron and Francisco and some of the other victims lived. Some were just visiting, but it was actually some of their home. Kimberly Ann Jenkins, the girlfriend of Jonathan Gleason, was at the house when Victorino was there. She said that he was threatening and that he said if he didn't get his stuff back, he would do any means to get it back. And okay, I can see why some people were like, oh, this was motivated by stuff. I still don't think that it was stuff. I think it was the eviction. Yeah, I think it was like he felt slighted. Exactly. Erin didn't give him his belongings, and she said that that was because she was scared. She also didn't have everything at the Telford Roadhouse. Victorino's belongings were with a few different people because they had said to get rid of it, different people took different items. Kimberly, Aaron, Francisco, and Rebecca Ortiz took Victorina's possessions from the Providence Road home. And it's also suggested that perhaps other people did it as well. Some of the people we just mentioned, like Kimberly, we don't discuss otherwise. But it seems as though various people took various items and they were kind of in this social circle of people having stuff. And so she probably had to figure out how to trace this back, right? Like, how do you get certain things? So Aaron only knew Victorina through her cousin Joshua, who we had mentioned earlier, And she also didn't want Joshua letting random people live in her grandmother's house. She was the one who was responsible for it. So it's very reasonable to me that she was like, you're not in charge of this house while she's not here. Right, right. So Jonathan Gleason, he told Aaron to give Victorino his stuff back. He was like, just give it back to him. Better safe than sorry. Just give it back. Yeah. And Aaron told Victorino that she would meet him at 6 p.m. at the Providence Road home on August 1st. But Victorino didn't show up. That's where I'm like... He could have gotten his stuff back, but he like chose not to be there. Yeah. I don't know if she would have given him all of his stuff back at that point, but I I do think he would have gotten more of it. And it seemed like she was making an effort to try to give him his belongings. And I mean, you were squatting in a house that she's responsible for. Right. That's more consideration than a lot of people would give you. Lots of people would just throw it away or sell it. The fact that you were able to get anything back, that is better than most would get. So I think it's interesting, too, that... One, that the deputy was just like, "Mm, I don't know, do whatever with the stuff instead of go, all right, well, let's like make a report like who owns it? Where should it be? Can we call this person to come get it now while I'm here? I just feel like there should have been more. It should have been more organized, I guess, instead of like, eh, there's stuff here. Get rid of it. Yeah, it doesn't feel thorough. And I think part of the reason why it was a little less organized was because Reedy didn't press charges. There was nothing for them to put in that report because they weren't going to be, you know, filing charges for trespass or, you know, breaking and entering or burglary. So where would all these notes go? And to what end would they be taking them? And I think in absence of a crime, they have no reason to be involved. Yeah, it's just very weird. Like this person can't be here, but just get rid of the stuff. I don't know. It's it's strange. But I also think if they had taken his name in the beginning, this response would have been different. It definitely would have. Yes. Because of how many priors he had. Well, and not just priors, but violent priors. Yes. I think that would have really, I I mean, I would hope that that would skew how they would respond to this. They would go, oh, perhaps we should be here and you call him now and he comes and gets the stuff while we watch something. Exactly. Exactly. So early morning of August 1st, Deputy McDonald met Victorino at Sky Street in Deltona. Victorino claimed that his personal belongings had been stolen from the Providence home, and Deputy McDonald told him to make a list of what had been stolen. Reasonable. Reasonable, absolutely. Victorino had not seen that his belongings were taken, though. I've seen a couple things, too, that he might have seen someone wearing one of his shirts, but again, it wasn't like on an actual court dock or anything meaningful. I also wonder if when his friends were there, they reported that his stuff was being moved and touched. That could be. And that he heard from a person from a person or he saw someone wearing his shirt. I mean, that would piss most people off. Yeah. A number of things. Victorino got mad at the deputy and said, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it myself. Deputy McDonald urged Victorino to reach out to Aaron to report what had been taken. And that just seems kind of weird, too, like this dude sounds pissed and he's, a little scary and like you should have run his name at this point and you're just like oh go see this 22 year old girl and take care of it yourself like after he just like made a threatening statement doesn't make sense to me yeah it's bizarre and just the response of i'll take care of this myself because you don't want to make a list like i understand if not everybody's a list maker like if you're saying things are stolen tell us what's stolen <laughs> yeah one well, also likely aaron would need a list of what she was going to go find Later on August 1st, around 8 p.m., Victorino went to the Telford Lane home, which was Aaron's home. Flacco gave him two bags of his clothing, but that wasn't all of his possessions. And notably, he said that he was missing a GameCube and I believe two Xboxes. Later on August 1st slash August 2nd, because we're talking about the wee hours of the morning around 1 a.m., Robert Anthony Cannon, who was 18, drove the group over to Aaron's house, the Telford Lane home, and parked in a neighbor's yard. And the group we're talking about included Victorino, Jerome Hunter, who was 18, Michael Salas, who was 18, Brandon Graham, who was 18, Chad, Ricky, and Chris, don't know their last names, Mike Wilkins, Andrew with an unknown last name, and three sisters named Nicole, Crystal, and Naomi. Their last names were not included in the court docs either. From what we saw, Cannon, Salas, and Graham had recently met Victorino before they agreed to help him get his stuff back. And, you know, as we noted, right, he's significantly older than them. they're, They're actually 10 years younger than him. He was 28. So some of the people in the group approached the house screaming and cursing. The three young women went into the house with knives. Victorino, Salas, Cannon, and Graham, and Hunter all remained in the vehicle. The young women came back out a few minutes later with Victorino's CD case. Flacco stood at the front door and said he was calling the police. Flacco's friend, 19-year-old Abby Vasquez, was also there. And Hunter yelled for the people inside the house to come out and fight. Some of the people in the group slashed the tires of some of the Telford Lane residents' cars, and then the group left. And Abby Vasquez's tires were slashed. Keep his name in your mind because we're going to talk about him later, too. So Erin called the police while they were in the house around one fifteen in the morning, and she told the 911 operator that there were a bunch of girls yelling inside her home and that they wouldn't leave. Yeah. And in the documentary, they had this 911 call too. And it was very sad because it sounds like she was kind of hiding, I don't want to say hiding, but like hiding in her room while, you know, Flacco's like trying to stand at the door, right? Mm-hmm. And she's in there with her dog. And she's like, my dog's terrified. He's shaking. She's like, there's girls screaming. And then the nine one one operator's like, are they in the house? She's like, it sounds like yeah. There's some in the house. There's some outside the house. Like it's just chaos. And unfortunately, the dog doesn't make it either, George. Yeah, we not We didn't talk about it in the beginning, but the dog is a. It's a dachshund named George that also. Yeah, but the way she described it, because I, you know, like you put yourself in that situation too, like. You don't know what the hell is happening. You're just like pent up in a room trying to keep your dog calm because your poor little dog is like terrified. And you're just expecting people to, you know, come help really quickly and get it resolved. And unfortunately, this wasn't. Yeah. So later, Brandon Graham, so one of the guys that was with Victorino, is interviewed. And he says that Troy Victorino hid in the car the whole time that night because he didn't want to be seen. And that's partly, you know, because he had just got arrested. He was on probation. So there's a number of reasons why he did not want to show his face. And he says also during his interview that he thinks they took baseball bats up to the house. But he's like, it seemed like he couldn't really remember all of the details from that night. It's kind of weird. Yeah. So the group, Victorino's group, leaves before the police arrive. Multiple people that night say that Troy Victorino was there. His name was said by several different people as being at the altercation, even though he was never seen. And it makes sense because they're like, where's Victorino's stuff, right? Like yeah. They're screaming at the door. Obviously, he sent them. So former state attorney John Tanner later said that this was a mistake made by police not looking into Victorino that night. Had they looked into him being connected to this, perhaps they could have stopped it. Now, Ben Johnson, the former Volusia County Sheriff, also had something to say about this. And he said that even with the warning that he was there. So even though, you know, they were told Victorino was there, no one could tell them that they definitely saw him. And he's like, we can't make up charges to put someone in jail. Interesting. So like, that makes sense. Oh, you think he was here, but did you see him? Where was he? And no one could like say. But also in the same regard, they could have asked Reedy if she has changed her mind on pressing charges. Mm-hmm. Especially if, yeah, Aaron said, like, I, now I'm being harassed by them. And yeah. they're bringing, like, people to my door in the middle of the night screaming. Like, I feel like any grandmother would be like, oh, my gosh, get that person off the streets. Yeah, absolutely. So Flocka was very worried that night about Aaron, especially. So he called Aaron's dad. And Bill, Aaron's dad, spoke with Aaron. And later when he's interviewed about it, he was like, she was very scared. And he was trying to, like, make her feel a little bit better. He summed it up to, like, they're just a bunch of punks. They're trying to scare you. And he also said, if you're that scared, though, Aaron, come home. And she's like, oh, no, no, no. Wrote it off. Yeah. And in the interview, he had tears coming down his face. And he's like, I just wish she would have come home. Like, he didn't know it was that bad. Because he's like, yeah, this group of people are just bothering her. They're being loud and annoying, but, like, not going to hurt her over stuff. Also, a group of, like, young women running in stealing a cd case i mean maybe they have a knife but they're just grabbing a cd case it's alarming but it's it's not scary to me right like i would be like i would be alarmed and my guard would be up but i no one could have guessed what was going to happen exactly exactly with the exception of the people who had victorino's criminal history they are the people who should have predicted that this was escalating and getting worse and worse and worse absolutely So then, remember, this was like around 1.15 that she had called the cops first time. At 3.41 a.m., she calls the police back because there was banging at the door again. And she thought the group was back. All night long, these people are harassing them. Yeah. So per the court documents, quote unquote, a few days later, which is not a precise measurement of time, the group met up at a local park to, quote unquote, fight some kids. And they wanted to fight these kids because they had beat up Cannon and Salas. And apparently Cannon had actually been beat up pretty badly. Some of the group brought backs. Cannon had a gun. Graham knew some of the people they were going to fight, and they did not live at the Telford Lane home. Keep that in your head. The people they were supposed to fight didn't show up. So they all get back in the car. I'm assuming it's cannons, because as we discussed them going to and fro places, it's always cannon driving. But as they left, the other group drives by in a car. So they followed them. And Victorino, from what I've seen, shot the gun at the other car. And I didn't see that there was injury to the other group, but you can't go around shooting cars. Right. And it shows that like he had issues or at least his group had issues with many different people at this time. Exactly. Right. And keep in mind, right? The people here, he's quote unquote, like backing his friends up. Yeah. His problems aren't with this other group. He's there for canon and solace. Yeah. Yeah. So keep that in mind, too. So now we're going to talk about what happened on August 5th. And Victorino had a check in with his probation officer that day. The probation officer could have had him arrested for violating his probation, but he didn't. A lot of people theorize that he was also intimidated by Victorino. And like had he like mentioned, oh well, we're gonna arrest you today, like he might have been in a room alone with him. And maybe that was intimidating. Okay. But also like you're in the wrong profession. Yeah, like that's literally your job. Like that's your number one part of your job is to do that. Yeah. Then something that I saw that was very interesting and like kind of weird is in the documentary, they did say that there was a warrant for a violation of probation that, quote, came down hours after the murders were committed. So at some point between the 5th and the 6th, it does sound like someone put a warrant out, but it wasn't obviously in time. Yeah. Interesting note, though, his probation officer got fired for not arresting him before the massacre took place. And the Florida corrections secretary, when they learned about the murders, he immediately fired the probation officer and three supervisors. Good. Yeah, because, I mean, they dropped the ball, right? Yeah. So the rest of this that we're going to talk about happened throughout the 5th to the early morning hours of the 6th when the murders actually took place. Victor Reno claims that he went to the bar and then he went home on the night of the murders, which... Clearly he didn't. Yeah. According to the testimony from the trial, before the murder, Cannon, Solace, and Graham went to Victorino and Hunter's home. Victorino gave Cannon a gun. And some of the people had a problem with Flacco's friend, Abby. So remember, we mentioned him the night that the group came to the home screaming at the door, right? Well, Abby was part of that group that they had went to the park to meet. So like to fight each other. And again, the reason they had like issues with him is because Abby and a group of his friends had beat up Canon and Solace at one point. So, you know, like these people are feuding. Well, Victorino used that to his advantage and told them, well, hey, Abby is often hanging out with Aaron and Flacco's home. Or perhaps, I mean, Abby was a, a twin, so, or perhaps his twin brother would be there too. So they're like, oh, like we could totally get revenge on this dude. Well, from what it's speculated is that Victorino pretty much like used him as bait, right? Abby'll be there, you guys can do what you want. And neither Abby or his brother were actually there that night. So like, it didn't actually have any meaning, but they were like already too far into this. Yeah. So Victorino then described the movie Wonderland. And Victorino said that they could attack Aaron's home, the Telford Lane home, like in the movie Wonderland. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. (laughs) So later, there is an interview with Graham, and he describes the movie a little bit. He says that at the end of the movie Wonderland, Someone is beat to death with a lead pipe in their home. And so when Victorino's describing this to all of them, they're all like, yeah, let's go do that. So Salas says, yeah, I'm down for that. Cannon says, I'm ready to kill me a bitch. Hunter agreed. And Graham, from what I understand, was like the last to chime in. And it was kind of like peer pressure. Like They're all looking at him. And he's like, yeah, I guess I'm in. Yeah. But he wasn't like he was the last to speak, at least in his interview he talks about like, I didn't speak up right away, because I'm like, what the hell? As an after the fact, you would likely say, oh, I was reluctant to say I mean, even if you were hyped up in the moment, I think that yeah, you know, good sense would perhaps filter how you portrayed that to the world. Well, we're gonna talk about like his actual happenings that evening, though. And it does sound like he had some reservations to this. So I could see him being like, maybe no. Yeah, it does. For sure. So Victorino then went on to describe the layout of the Telford Road home and where people slept. He even described how they would split up who would kill who. Victorino completely denies that he said he said that by the way. Not surprising. According to testimony, Victorino also mentioned that there were no weapons in the house, so they would be easier to kill, and that he made it very clear that he wanted to kill Flacco himself. And then he told the group to quote, beat the bitches bad because all they do is talk shit. Hunter suggested everyone wear a mask, but Victorina replied, We're going to kill them all, and noted that they wouldn't leave any evidence. So they then looked for more bullets and for another gun and got several bats together. They also discussed the fact that they would need to find a set of clothing to change into, and... When offering Graham some clothes to change into, Hunter said, I guess we're going to get blood on our clothes. And he mentioned that they would need a change of clothes so that they could get rid of the evidence. And that's when Graham's like, uh, and I think it's starting to sink in that this is not just talk. So he tries to back out and Salas says to Graham, you can't bitch out on us. Graham was afraid of Victorino and asked Cannon to take him to Chris Craddock's house. The group told Graham that they would be back to get him around seven And Victorino had told Graham that they would be killing the Telford Lane people at 10. Like, I love this, like, a schedule. They had, like, an itinerary of this. Like, the fuck? Right? Well, and from what I understand, too, when Graham was interviewed later, he was like, I just, like, made up an excuse. I was like, hey, school starts on Monday. I have to go, like, sort some stuff out at a friend's house. But, like, I'll totally be down to meet up with you guys. Just come pick me up after. But he was just trying to put distance so that he could not... I mean, absolutely, that it was yeah. So after arriving at Craddock's house, Graham then asked Craddock to not tell the group that he was with him, and instead to say that he had gone to visit his sick brother in Deland. Graham had also told Craddock about Victorino's plan. So they went to the home of another friend, Nate June, to play video games. And Graham spent the night at Craddock's house. And so Graham, when he finds out about the murders, says that he didn't think that they were serious. And That just seems like such bullshit to me. So they discuss whether they should call the police, but they ultimately decide not to because they don't think they're going to do it. That just sounds like bullshit to me because you wouldn't have lied about where you were and gone to a third location if you didn't think that this was possibly going to happen. My thought is that if you didn't think that would happen, then why are you hiding? But then also, I think he was like, well, what will happen to me if, let's say, I do stop this from happening and they don't get Victorino so what happens to me um that would be conspiracy to commit murder you know what I mean like it's still a crime to do all this this is still a crime and in case you're wondering for conspiracy most of the time it's an overt act in furtherance of the conspiracy so they started gathering bats to murder these people act in furtherance of the conspiracy for sure for sure so I mean he wouldn't know this he wouldn't know this but I'll say look your own death is not a defense to murder, right? Like if you kill someone because you're afraid somebody will kill you otherwise. Right, right. It doesn't count. You don't get to kill people because you would rather save yourself. Well, and yeah, he hid from it. But what I mean is like, I'm trying to think like as an 18 year old, he is fearful, right? Like, And again, I'm not writing him off because I feel like there are a million different things. Even if he didn't want to call the police, why couldn't he have tipped off Aaron? You know, like there's so many things he could have done and he chose not to. But I'm also thinking of like a scared 18 year old. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sucks like that position that, that he even associated with these people sucks. But yeah, that it's just like a, it's a tricky situation for him is what I'm trying to like. I, I don't like it and I don't agree with it. But it is. I see it from his point of view as being tricky. Yeah, I'm not saying it's not tricky. I just I I can't imagine making that decision. No, no. And going, well, but me over six people. I mean, he doesn't know six people, but yeah, me, my life's more important, right? Like, right. I could see how you could justify it to yourself. Like, no, it's just talk. It's just talk. Yeah, right. But like, a little ounce of him was scared and knew. You were scared enough to hide. Right. So per Salas, and again, this is from the trial, Cannon, Victorino, Hunter, and himself broke into the Providence home to retrieve Victorino's items first. Prior to the murder, Victorino said... When I come out, nobody is going to be survivors. And in one of the interviews, too, with Graham, he mentioned something like, he was like, I don't care who's in there. I don't care if there's women. I don't care if there's children in there. You kill everyone. That sounds scary. That sounds very scary. Gross. It does, right? Like to be in the room with somebody who's saying that. And like, from all accounts, I see he seemed serious. Absolutely. And obviously, like, everyone was scared of him, right? Even including these 18 year olds, they were like intimidated and scared. And they knew that he had done things before they had seen him, they were intimidated by him. They were scared of him. And it's just it's awful. So prior to the murder, one of Victorino's co-conspirators would later say that Victorino, quote, wanted us to fight some kids to get his stuff back. It's interesting that that's how they would sum it up so quickly, right? That like, just, right, like just fight, even fight. Yeah. When later they would say like, they are defenseless. Right, exactly. So before going to the Telford home, they attempted to steal a car, but they were unsuccessful. It's very interesting, though, because it sounded like Victorino did that many times and then often was now unsuccessful. I want like, I don't know the details on what happened, but it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So now we're going to talk about the murders. So Victorino, Hunter, Solace, and Cannon entered the Telford home in the early morning hours of August 6, 2004. And remember, Graham did not accompany them. He was hiding out at a friend's house, but originally he was in the plan to be there as well. Victorino looked in the windows to see where the people in the house were. So like what rooms they were in, what they were doing. Yeah. At this point, Solace and Cannon said that they didn't want to continue. So they're like, oh, man, we're actually here. Never mind. I would also imagine that point. Like if he's saying who's that he can see, he did not mention Abby. That's true. That's true. Right. So they may be like, well, we're out. Like our reason for being here is not not here. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. That makes sense where they're like, the person we want revenge on isn't here. So like, what's the point? So Victorino said, quote, if you leave, you're just like these people. And what that means is like. Then you're my enemies, too, right? Like, and he's a scary guy. Yeah. Then you're basically dead, right? Because what's about to happen to these people? Exactly. And so Solace believed that Victorino was indeed threatening him, which I think he was, too. Then Victorino kicked open the door. As the group made their way into the house, Victorino directed them where to go. And Victorino walked directly to the master bedroom. Hunter went to Jonathan Gleason, who was sitting in a recliner, and he hit him about a dozen times because he thought that Gleason was lying about not knowing where the belongings were. Jonathan tried to get up. As he did that, Victorino was leaving the master bedroom, and he hit Jonathan the back of the head with a bat. And after that, Jonathan didn't move again. Now, Hunter testified that he did not hit anyone in the head and that he did not stab anyone. So, per testimony, Victorino then instructed Hunter to go help the others. Hunter then went into a room where Cannon and Anthony Vega were and saw that they were, quote, unquote, swinging at each other. Hunter hit Anthony on the shoulder, which caused him to drop a stick that he had been using to defend himself. Victorino then came in and said something to Anthony in Spanish that caused Anthony's eyes to widen. Then Victorino pushed past Cannon and Hunter and hit Anthony. So it sounds like he was almost like just going room to room. And like when these 18 year olds, for the most part, weren't doing the job right, he was like, well, let me just do it myself. So Roberto or Tito ran to one of the back bedrooms and Solace followed him. Tito grabbed Solace by the waist and told Solace that he did not live there. So like, he's like, I'm not part of this. And Solace told Tito, okay, I'm not going to do nothing. Let me go. Then Solace hit Tito in the back with a baseball bat. Solace then called for help with Tito. Cannon came in and helped beat Tito with his bat. So two of them essentially went after him. Victorino told Cannon to go back to the car. Hunter would later testify that he did not attack anyone else and that he had begun to search the closets for the missing belongings. Solace, however, said that Hunter went into the bedroom and beat Tito to death. Solace pleaded for him to stop, but Hunter said he had to kill him. Solace said that he had lost count of how many times Hunter hit Tito with the bat. In this time, Victorino went back to the master bedroom where he called for Solace. Solace said that he saw Flacco on the bed and wasn't sure if he was alive. Victorino was holding Aaron by her left foot and was holding a bat in his right hand. He said to Solace, quote, watch what I do to this bitch. And Solace left the room and was heading out of the house. All of this is very brutal. It's going to get worse. So Solace did not know whether Aaron or Flacco were alive at this point. And when they eventually left the scene, Victorino told the group that he had put his bat in Aaron and Flacco. Disgusting. So on his way out, Salas saw Hunter grab a knife and put it to Gleason's neck. But he didn't see what he did with it after that. Salas went outside and got into the vehicle with Cannon. And he wanted to leave, but Cannon said they had to stay and wait for the others. Hunter then came out and said that he had found a girl in the house and that he killed her, although she had pleaded for her life. And that girl was Michelle Nathan. Per Solace, Hunter said that he had hit her in the head multiple times and stabbed her in the chest. Hunter would deny that he ever saw Michelle in the house. And again, he said he didn't stab anyone. Victorino, at this point, was still searching the house. So Hunter went back inside. A few minutes later, they both came back out. They then left the scene And then Victorino said that he needed to return because he had left his fingerprints. When he went back in, he went alone with a bat and he took Salas' switchblade with him. After a few minutes later, he walked back out. And one account says when he was walking back out, he wiped blood from the knife on his sweatshirt. And another says that when he was coming out, he had a plastic bag covered in blood. Victorino handed the knife back to Salas and said, wipe it off real good. Clean it real good. Hunter and Victorino returned to their home and washed their clothes. And so we're not going to get into it. We're not going to discuss it thoroughly. But during all of this, their dachshund, George, was also killed. Yeah. So after the murders, they went to an apartment complex in DeBerry where they cleaned up and they had tried to throw the bats in a nearby pond, but only two of them actually made it to the pond. Next, they went to Walmart. Victorino went to an ATM with the cards that he had just taken from the Telford home. And Victorino told Solace to watch Canon and said, essentially, if you guys call the cops on me, I'm going to take you out too. I don't understand. Like, he sounds so awful. And it's just like, how do you even like get in contact with this person? You know, like, how do you end up in this group? Like, I think by circumstance. Yeah, it's sad. And then as they left Walmart, Hunter and Victorino were joking about killing the dog. Disgusting. Absolutely. So we're in the early morning of August sixth at this point when they're leaving Walmart. But later that on that same day, Christopher Carroll received a call from his girlfriend who worked at Burger King. And she called because two of her coworkers hadn't showed up. Christopher went to the home of his girlfriend's two co workers, and her coworkers were Anthony and Tito. So Christopher went to ring the doorbell and knock on the door, but when he did, the door popped open. And that's because, remember, Victorino had kicked it in hours before. So he then realized the door had looked like it had been kicked in. Christopher noticed that in the room to his immediate right, the bed had been tipped over and that there was, quote, blood all over. And that's how he described it in his 911 call. Yeah. So when he describes blood all over, I saw some of the crime scene videos and they're absolutely horrific. Like the beds are completely covered. It's like a red mattress and the walls and it looked like it was just the entire room. All of them were like just covered in blood. The way that some of the interviews of like the sheriff and like the people that had gone there, they were like, this stays with you. Like, you can't forget this scene. Yeah. Oh, no, there's absolutely no way. We're going to talk in vague terms in, in a bit about how their remains appeared, but we're not going to go into detail because it is that gruesome. But so Deputy Anthony Crane of the Volusia County Sheriff's Office came out to investigate. And during their search of the home, Crane and other officers found the remains of the six victims. Two men were in the living room. A man and a woman were found beneath the box spring in the master bedroom, along with George, the the dachshund, a woman was found in one bedroom and a man was found in another. So the morning of, Craddock's mother calls him and tells him about the murder. So Graham appeared shocked as though he hadn't taken the plot seriously. And we talked about this earlier that we think that to some degree he must have taken it seriously because of the measures he took, right? He hid. So interesting. Also on August 6th, Solace, Victorino, Hunter and Cannon drove to Sanford so that Victorino could get rid of some stuff from the Telford home. Graham went to get his clothing from Deborah Newberry's house. And he had been staying with Deborah for the past few days. And Deborah was Solace's grandmother. Before he could leave, the group showed up. They didn't say anything about the murders. And Solace specifically said that he had not been involved. Suspicious. Which is weird. Like, why would you even, like, bring that up? Yeah. So Graham saw that Victorino's missing personal items were now in Cannon's truck. So somehow they had obtained these items. Craddock and Graham decided that they would turn the group into the police if they didn't arrest them soon. So they were like kind of sitting on it, it sounds like. Yeah. Graham talked to Deborah and he told her that he was there when the group had planned the murders. And then she called the police on her grandson. Fucking get it, Deborah. Graham also mentioned that Salas had a problem with the, quote, Abbey brothers. And that they had been at the Telford Lane home when the group had went there on the 1st. So he's already started to say, like, maybe he got them there like this way. Right. Because that's and to me, I think that's how he did hype them up to go with him. And so we talked about it a lot. Yeah. But what was done to them was pretty terrible. And so the autopsy findings were pretty horrific. I think that we haven't seen descriptions this bad since Ditloff just the level of carnage. So each victim was severely beaten with at least one baseball bat, and they died as a result of those injuries. But that wasn't the extent of the injuries. Before we get into the the other injuries they had, in some instances, they had been beaten so severely that their skulls had been crushed, and the medical examiners couldn't properly examine the bodies because during autopsies, they'll remove the brain. In some instances, they could not do that. And in some instances, the brain was in pieces. Yeah. Like, how do you do that? Horrific. Well, also the strength it takes to do that over and over and over again, right? Yeah. So some of the victims also had stab wounds on various parts of the bodies, but the stab wounds were not the cause of death. Aaron was also sexually assaulted, but it's unclear whether it was before or after she died. We're not going to go through piece by piece, but they were beaten severely. These were painful deaths. These were purposeful. These were not one blow. Well, and it seemed like when we were talking about what happened that night, right, that he was able to go from like room to room and kind of circle back. So you're like, what was happening during this? Were they dead? Were they not dead? And even a couple of the guys were like, I don't know if they were dead at that time. But like, he continued to go back and do what he was doing. So it's horrible. Again, like the, the videos of the crime scenes after they had removed the bodies was horrific to even look at. I can't imagine what they went through. So the investigation. The crime scene investigator, Stacy Colton, documented the placement of the victims, furniture, and other pieces of evidence. She also photographed the damaged front door took photos of the shoe track impressions, and collected a knife handle that was separate from a blade. Multiple baseball bats were recovered, including those in the woods and pond. One bat, which was labeled Q2, had been wrapped in black tape and had four unidentified latent prints underneath the tape. And what those are is they're normally made from like sweat and oil that form on the skin's surface, and it's invisible to the naked eye and needs additional processing. Interesting. Interesting. So it's not like they could go, there's a print there. It's like, let's see if there are prints on this. And then one of the bats too, it looks like they were trying to throw them all in the pond, but like they overthrew in a sense and it got stuck in a tree. And one of the ones that got stuck in the tree had tissue samples and hair samples from one of the victims. So Hunter voluntarily went with law enforcement officers and spoke with investigators. During his interview, he gave inconsistent statements and was literally crying and shaking. Hunter eventually confessed after 2 hours from what I saw and said it wasn't supposed to happen like that. To me, Hunter is secondary to Victorino right? Like if we were going to rank them in, you know, layers of awfulness. He was just a hair under Victorino. He was present, active, joking about it. If you can joke about this then you clearly aren't surprised it happened in this manner. Right. And in the documentary, when they get to this part, right, and they're like showing, they're showing bits and pieces of like them interviewing him. And as they're describing what's happening, they're like, for the longest time, he would not give anything away. Like, he wouldn't give Victorino away, nothing. And then it took two hours to where they finally were like, so what happened? So he stuck up from for a long time. And then from what I understand, Victorino... Never gave anyone away. Because he was a pro, right? Like, he did this all the time. Yeah. Ugh. Amanda mentioned the shoe imprints a moment ago, and those were matched to a pair of shoes found in Victorino's possession. They even found evidence that he was wearing those particular shoes on that night. So the group had went to Seven Eleven at some point that evening, and he was wearing the particular boots... Now, Victorino says that he actually went home after 7-Eleven and changed into a different pair of shoes because he was going to a bar and he was going to be dancing. It just seemed like a very specific rebuttal. Yeah. I saw at one point, too, somewhere in there that he mentioned like he left those shoes outside and perhaps someone took them. Yeah. DNA testing on the boots showed that Aaron, Anthony, Flacco, and Tito's blood was on the boots. If I had left my shoes outside for whatever reason, I think I would notice that there was blood on them before I took them inside. Yeah. So let's skip ahead to the trial. During the trial, the jury heard Christopher's 911 call, as well as videotape evidence from the scene, which included the way that the bodies of the victims were found. Solace, Hunter, and Victorino were all tried together, and they all testified. Cannon pled guilty and agreed to testify in exchange for a life sentence. So interesting how... He was kind of on his own here. However, soon after, he tried to withdraw his plea and said that he was innocent. So I wonder, like, what was going through his mind there. Cannon said that while Victorino may have had murder on his mind, it wasn't in his. And I feel like that's so untrue because he pretty much laid out the plan before the murder, right? Like, and he was like, game for it then. Cannon argued that both he and Solace were afraid of Victorino and that, quote, we had no choice. We had to go with him. Could have called the police, but also Graham. Graham left. Graham's like made up an excuse and was like, bye, guys. I got places to be. Even if they got to the scene, he literally went into a different room. They could have gotten the fuck out. Cannon was the driver remember he said we have to wait for them when salas wanted to leave and they could have like if anyone was still there you know like because it sounds like he marched to the back first he could have been like get in the fucking car we're going like we're all leaving canon orally requested to withdraw his guilty pleas and his plea wasn't withdrawn he did confirm that he salas hunter and victorino were in the house the night of the murders He originally didn't want to testify because he continued to assert that he was not guilty. Victorino's background and mental health was discussed by his counsel in an attempt to save him from the death penalty. And we discussed his mental health and his history earlier in the episode. But this is where they talked about it. You don't really hear about his mental health until the end of the story most of the time. And I feel like that's crucial in understanding what he went through, how this happened. And so during the sentencing portion, there were also some mental health professionals that testified and all agree that Victorino knew the difference between right and wrong. Now, Dr. Wu, who studies neuropsychological disorders through brain imaging, reviewed Victorino's PT scans and mental health history. And he concluded that Victorino suffered from abnormalities of the frontal lobe, and that this can be due to injury, disease, genetics, or environment. Mm-hmm. Dr. Wu testified that the majority of patients who have been diagnosed with or abnormalities of the frontal lobe do not murder people. But those who do suffer from that abnormality have an inability or difficulty to stop themselves. To me, that makes me think of like impulse control issues. They get an idea and they're going to do it. Like there's nothing with putting the brakes on. Yeah. And it makes total sense because like when you're looking at this, he's mad over stuff. He's mad over being evicted. And then he tries to like rope the others in because someone else wronged them. And instead of just being like, walk away, get your stuff back. No one's withholding all of it from you. It's that impulse control, like you mentioned, like, well, I have to make them pay for it now. Yeah, exactly. Dr. Charles Golden conducted a neuropsychological evaluation of Victorino and reviewed his records. And per Dr. Golden... Victory in his executive functions test revealed that he had a measure of impulsiveness. And his Rorschach inkblot test revealed that he had severe emotional problems. And just also interesting, during the sentencing phase, Dr. Golden admitted that he had a horrible memory when it came to remembering his clients. So it was a little bit of like... Are you sure you're the best and most reliable person to say this because you don't really remember your clients? And that's alarming. Just like That's an interesting thing that was noted in court docs was that like this doctor had a horrible memory. That is. Yeah, you would think that they would have found a better doctor that had a good memory. So Victorino, Hunter, and Solace were convicted on multiple charges in relation to the Telford home murders. Victorino and Hunter were sentenced to multiple life sentences and death. Solace was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. They all appealed their convictions, but were not successful in their appeals. Finally, someone puts Victorino away. So Victorino and Hunter appealed their sentencing and were successful because the jury decisions on the death penalty were not unanimous. So basically, they need to be resentenced. There was a hearing earlier this year but there's nothing publicly that was released at this time. So in the inmate search system, though, for Florida correctional facilities, there's an area that has like release date details and Hunter and Victorinos are listed as pending. Not sure what that means, whether like their sentence is pending or if a release is pending. I hope not a release. And then Solace's little area of the release date says life. So like doesn't seem like anything's happening with that. That makes me think that it's like either sentence that is indefinite, you know, or release date. Right. Like there might be a few different things that go in that field. and It just has a poor title. Exactly. Yeah. An unfortunate title. So because there are things that are pending with their cases, though, Whenever there is an update that, you know, is given to the public, we will make sure to update you in True Crime Digests. Yeah, yeah. We'll definitely keep an eye out for if they're resentenced and how that goes. It's just awful it took this to actually, like, put him behind bars for a longer period of time than he usually was. When you think of where it started, right? There's someone staying in my grandmother's house. They don't belong here. I'm watching her house and she said nobody can live here. That's what you kill somebody over? Or that paired with they have your stuff. Like, it's wild to me that you can escalate that quickly. And to me, that makes me think that it was not a matter of if, it was a matter of when. Yeah. And that the fact that not all of them that was murdered that night even lived there he mentioned anyone that's here is going to die. And it's just like, some of them were just visiting some were just friends, some didn't actually have anything to do with anything happening. And we're just at the wrong place, wrong time. Yeah, exactly. I do think that just the next person who crossed him was who was going to be the outlet for this level of aggression. Truly, truly heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, this is one of the more brutal cases that we've covered. It is very, very sad. And like Lindsay said, you know, because this one is in the news currently, right? Like it's it's being revisited. We'll be covering it again. If there is a case that, you know, is current and there are updates, let us know if there's something you want us to cover so we can add it to our True Crime Digest. Again, this one was uh, a listener request, and we are happy to take other requests if there is something that, you know, you're passionate about. Or uh, I know we've had some people reach out even with missing persons reports, right? And we're hoping to get their information out there. So if there is something that you're passionate about, let us know. And with that, have a great weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com truecreepspod, and on Twitter at True Creeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps.